Welcome to this HemeCast episode. I'm Paul McLaughlin, a specialist physiotherapist working in hemophilia. In this episode, we will be chatting to two um, physios uh, about the concept of physical activity and its importance in health and well-being. But also, we'll be talking about what being active may mean for people with hemophilia. So I'm going to let my guests introduce themselves. So if I ask Ruth Elise to introduce yourself, tell us where you're from, what you're interested in. Thank you. Yeah, I'm um, Ruth Elise Matlary, physiotherapist and PhD student from Norway, working at Oslo University Hospital. And I'm currently doing a PhD project on physical activity for people with hemophilia. So that's great to be here to talk to you about that today. Thank you. And we'll go over to Melanie Bladen. Hello, everyone. Um, my name's Melanie Bladen. I'm a physio at Great Ormond Street Hospital in the UK, where I've been for the last 20 plus years. We've just completed uh, some research looking at performance measures in children with haemophilia and looking at physical activity as well. So it's um, quite apt that I've been asked to talk today as well. Thank you very much for both agreeing to take part in this. So we'll do a very general kickoff question then to get us started. What do we mean, do you think, when we hear people or indeed healthcare professionals talking about physical activity? What is it? Shall I go first? From my perspective, then I think physical activity is anything that involves movement or energy expenditure. So that can be from from a child, from jumping up and down on the stairs or for a a more elderly person, um, just climbing the stairs so I think the range of what physical activity is varied or it can be participating in some formal sports group so the range of what physical activity is variable in my opinion. Do you think people when they hear about physical activity do they think of movement or do they think of exercise? I think perhaps people think of exercise when they hear physical activity but actually like Melanie said it is all sorts of movements. And I think that's important for people to remember that when we think of a physically active lifestyle, it's not just exercising or going to the gym or participating in sports. It's, it can be anything. It could be just trying to stand up, go for a walk around your house. If you're in home office, it could be just taking your bike to work instead of the car. It's, a lot more than just exercise. And do you think it's just a, a fad, this idea now that everybody's talking about physical activity and it's a sort of a fad of modern medicine? Why is it important? What does moving around do that is important? If you think that if you're not, if you, you say, it keep it separate from the idea of exercise, why is it more important to be physically active? Or is it the same? Is it as important to be physically active as it is to do exercise? I, I think from a child perspective, there's physiological things, bone mineral density, moving around, jumping. You build that up in prepubertal years. So there's an importance of being physically active as a child. I think there's also an importance of being physical active, physically active to mental health and well-being, self-esteem, self-accomplishment, achievements, also in reducing obesity, which will have the long-term effects. And I think there's now an increasing knowledge of what you do as a child impacts on what you do or what can happen as an adult. So I think there's been push more for physically active children or activity in in childhood to be promoted because of the long-term implications of not being physically active as a child. So I think 
there was a fad maybe for us all to be physically active as adults, but now there's a greater push for that to start at a younger age. Not necessarily to start, but to continue, because children are physically active, it then reduces. It's how we promote children when they reach adolescence to maintain and continue to be physically active into adulthood. And so essentially what you're saying is the habits you make in childhood from being active theoretically or should continue into adulthood if you have good experiences with it, or it's normal for you to be that active. What if your childhood you weren't active? Can you change adult behavior to be more active if they weren't active as kids? Is that, a, is that Absolutely. Possible? I think like any behavioral change, it's something that you have to want to do and your changes would start off small unrealistic like whether it's any behavioral change smoking dietary whatever that the motivation has to come from yourself so whether or not you were physically active as a child or not there's it's never too late to change your behavior or your ability as an adult treater briefly what do you think the sort of men with hemophilia who grew up where physical activity perhaps wasn't allowed or seen as a safe thing to do or encouraged i think that message gets across around the, the modern message of physical activity with men whose childhood was where it was viewed perhaps as a dangerous thing to do? I think that will depend, of course, on the person's severity of haemophilia, the treatment that's been available to them, and if they've had inhibitors or not, and those early experiences with physical activity. And I think that for those who are older adults now, who didn't have access to treatment early in their lives. They were discouraged to do physical activity because it was considered dangerous. And of course it could be, if you've got a major bleed, that could be very dramatic. And I think that, like Mal said, children are physically active, they want to be. And perhaps some of them did attempt physical activity, but then had bleeds. They ended up in hospital, had to stay there for a long time, really suffered, and then didn't want to do it anymore. Or they were consequently scared to try again. And of course, it could be protective parents. There are those early experiences that probably impact people as they grow up and grow older and Perhaps that leads them to thinking it's safer to not be active and also they haven't really gained that positive experience and feel of this is something that's good for me to do. I, I agree and I think also then there could be fear avoidance as well because I'm, I'm sure a similar thing for the children that have had inhibitors like you were saying if you've had a past negative experience of being physically active then it's going to put you off wanting to be active. So you would develop a natural protective, whether it's intentional or otherwise, that you're going to avoid being physically active because you know the, there will be a fear of something negative happening or physically act, being physically active has negative connotations. And it's, I think for some people, there will be, if they want to change their lifestyle and their physical activity status, there will be an element of, behavior modification or challenging negative thoughts to enable them to be more physically active but again it all goes down to the individual wanting to change their behavior and that's an individual um, decision whether or not we choose to be physically active or not with that in mind how much do you think blame culture has any 
influence there as well, where they perhaps as children were active and they got a bleed and then they came to hospital and the healthcare professional says, what did you do now? Why have you got a bleed? What have you done wrong? And actually the, they have their own internal perhaps blame for, oh no, not again. And then you've got the healthcare professionals back in the day or hopefully not now saying, what have you done? Where actually the negative connotation becomes ingrained even in healthcare professional behaviour as well as I, I think you're behavior. right, because even now, when we're looking at bleeds, we look at mechanism of injury, we look at a causal uh, relationship between why somebody has a bleed. And then I suppose from a parental perspective and even from outside looking, you're looking at why did that happen? And that normally comes back to some decision that somebody's made, whether it was to play football or to do an activity on a day when treatment wasn't as effective. And I suppose you question yourself, why did I do that? Was that the right decision? And maybe from a child's perspective as well, they don't want to cause a necessary burden to their parents. So there will be that element of guilt if something may have happened and it was because they chose to go on the bouncy castle when they knew that they shouldn't have done it but they wanted to be the same as their friends so I, I think guilt blame is probably still there because I think medically we also we're still very driven by a causal medical system which I'm not saying that's wrong but it feeds into that really because you're looking for a, for a reason always and that normally comes down to some mode of action or of why somebody had a bleed. Is it safe to be active then if you've got haemophilia? Now it usually is, yes, with the current treatment. So children growing up today are really lucky compared to those who are now adults, didn't have the same access to treatment. And if you're on prophylaxis especially and you've got a good treatment plan and you're following that, you're perfectly safe to be physically active. From a good hemostasis perspective then, so if you've got treatment on board, it's safe because the risk of a spontaneous bleed or a provoked bleed is better. So there's safety there. What about be a better way of looking at feeling safe to be physically active? Do you think adults maybe, or children indeed on good prophylaxis, do they feel safe to be active given perhaps their previous negative experience? I think... That's partly to do with parental reaction. If a child has a bleed, whether or not a blame is attributed to that. It's a bit like if you take haemophilia out of it, a child's running, they fall over, they bang their knee. The parent screams, runs, and is overprotective in some respects to the child. Then the child thinks, ah, okay, maybe I shouldn't be running because I fall over. And they get a negative relationship to between falling over. Whereas if you just go, never mind, go on, rub it better and get it up, then that sort of, the feelings attributed to that are different. So I think there's much of a learnt behaviour on how children perceive bleeding incidents, whether or not that is family thing or not. And that's past medical history as well. Do you think the feeling safe to be active is more of a, to be physically active with their physical state is more of a problem for adults with affected joints. Is that a barrier? Yeah, I think it can be. And the physical limitations that adults might have will, of course, depend on those early bleeds and how severe they've been, how many you've had in the same joint and damage the joint is. So for those who've 
been several times to hospital during childhood, perhaps prolonged periods of bed rest with the following atrophy and reduced proprioception, joint deformities. They will probably also have reduced balance, reduced strength, reduced flexibility, which will impact on what they're actually able to do and what they feel safe doing. So some activities might not be possible for them to do. They might not even be able to get up on a bike or be safely off it. So yeah, there really can be a problem of not feeling safe and that being truly a problem. But also in some cases, I think that people might be more scared than they need to be and that a physiotherapist can help them identify these are your strengths. These are your limitations. This is what we need to work on to get you able to do what you want to and take it from there. Because I think most people want to do some kind of physical activity because that helps them participate in life, do stuff with friends, be able to go to work, play with their children or grandchildren. And that physio with experience in hemophilia will be able to help them achieve that. Raises brings me nicely to the next sort of thought then around how is it the physio's job then to have the conversations about physical activity or is it the team's job or is it the haemophilia center's job because these are people who happen to have haemophilia so who, whose job is it to talk about physical activity for that to be a conversation that is had I, I think it's a team approach because I think promoting physical activity from a young age seems or should be advocated by the consultant, the nursing staff, all of us, but maybe advice on specific activities or modifications or how to achieve a specific goal needs to come from the physio who's more familiar with the individual patient's functional limitations, range of movement, what they can actually physically achieve. But I think from our perspective, Promoting physical activity in our centre comes as a team package, but the specifics would be led by the physio. How do you approach that conversation with somebody who doesn't want to be physically active? In in your eyes, you, you perceive them to be an inactive individual or child or adult. How do you approach that? Somebody's like, I'm not addressed it. I don't want to move. <laughs> I suppose from a, from a very young age when we have new patients, we educate about the importance of being physically, physically active, not just from a haemophilia perspective, but from a, a general well-being and health perspective. And that's sort of drip fed, if you like, in the hope that will become, you know, that's something that parents can physically advocate for their parent, for their child from an early age. And as children become older and maybe become less active, then the education becomes more to the child. But I suppose it's about finding something that individual wants to do and also trying to look at what the barriers are to not being physically active and seeing whether you can have a conversation around that to either explain rationalize adapt to encourage people to be more physically active but the bottom line is if somebody doesn't want to be physically active that is their choice from our, from my perspective we can do all that we can but we all know there are families which are not physically active and it doesn't matter what you do that's engendered with them but you know we can advise we can encourage we can motivate and we can challenge beliefs but that would be my 
perspective and I think help them um, understand that they don't have to go and do a marathon tomorrow it's the small things like Elise was saying maybe not getting the bus to school getting off one stop earlier that's increasing your physically physical activity and that's for children maybe easily achievable rather than saying go and play a football match every Thursday or go swimming or whatever it is when parental ability and time might be constrained. So the child exists within the family's idea of physical activity. So if the family aren't physically active, it's un- perhaps less likely that the child may be facilitated to be more active. And so it's a family issue rather than the child with haemophilia issue. I think so. I mean, there's always differences or there's that child that is very sporty and the parents aren't. There's exceptions to every rule. But I think if a family is not active, then the child doesn't get the opportunities to be active they'll get opportunities within the school environment to participate in PE and maybe after school clubs that they may attend but if a family preoccupation is watching the television then a young child is not going to be taking itself off to the swimming pool on a Saturday if the parent doesn't take them so their exposure to a variety of different activities is going to be limited and that goes back to the education point that when parents come to the centre with a newly diagnosed child it's important for this child to be physically active and we explain why and we at our assessments ask what sort of physical activity are they participating in partly obviously to assess if there's any risky activities like make sure they're not doing rugby or, or specific contact sports but also to see if we can promote physical activity in a different way if they're not a sporty individual and you're participating in football or whatever we can say is there any other way that you can up your physical activity and that was apparent during covid and lockdown when we were all restricted and we took to zoom to do joe wicks or whatever was available so the child with haemophilia exists in the family and the parents what about the adults at least they obviously exist in their do they have more active choice because they're an adult or is it a passive active choice i suppose they've they're choosing not to be physically active because they have perceptions of risk or don't see the benefit because it's i've got this far i'm fine how, how would you try and perhaps change a perception or change a have a behavior modification with an adult who can't see the point in being active yeah i think it's important to remember like i mentioned before that physical activity is not just exercise and with exercise we mean that it's something you do to improve your health and fitness and usually like in a planned structured repetitive way and it doesn't have to be that and for people who are not physically active it's important to remember that some is better than none and that everything counts so that even if you just start doing a bit more physical activity that can help improve your health and perhaps the most important thing for those older adults could be that it can help them remain independent for a longer time that it can help them stay able to do what they want to do and not just deteriorate because they already have arthropathy it can cause new problems if they stay inactive. So I think that most people these days know that physical activity in some way is good for you for preventing non-communicable diseases like cardiovascular disease or diabetes, 
even some types of cancer, but it might seem a bit too difficult for people to achieve those goals of 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous intensity physical activity each week. But it doesn't have to be that complicated. If you just do a bit more than you're doing today, you're doing something good for yourself. And that's the message, is that the some was better than none and more is better than some, essentially. Is there a minimum amount of minutes or steps that you have to do to gain a health benefit? What's, is there a starting point or, or it's just move? Just that's <laughs> well said. It's, it's not that you have to do the, the magical 10,000 steps a day or those 150 minutes. Whatever that's more than just being inactive will help. You mentioned about moderate activity. So when we talk about being moderately active, what does that feel like? What does that actually mean? Is that so sort of most... hot and sweaty and breathless and not be able to do anything? Or is that sort of, I've climbed the that's stairs and the... good for the day? Not being able to like properly breathe, <laughs> that's more of the vigorous kind. And I actually think that even though we've seen that younger people with hemophilia are participating more in physical activity these days, that they might be doing almost as much as their peers without hemophilia. They're perhaps not doing as much of vigorous physical activity, at least that's what the recent research has shown. But you don't need to go to vigorous intensities to gain health benefits. And with moderate, it's more like slightly, you can feel your heart rate going up, that you're also breathing a bit faster, but it doesn't mean that you're not able to speak do you think that could be frightening for some people if that's an experience they have never done before? If you think that if you grew up being active and doing exercise, that's quite a normal physical response. Is there potential? Is there? I suppose do we have to coach and counsel some people that some of this stuff is normal? It's okay to feel a bit more pain after you've done some exercise, or it's okay to feel achy after you've been more active than normal. Like where the the boundaries of normal are for people if they don't. If you've never been to that boundary, how, how do you make people feel more comfortable to do that? I, I would say it's probably a gradual process. If somebody's never experienced that, then you're not going to suggest that they start running a marathon tomorrow and experience the, the breathlessness and, and the palpitations. It's going to be take yourself stepping on the stairs until you start to experience that feeling and that you're in control and that you can stop at any time. And I think that's important for the individual to understand that it is a normal process and that they are in control of what they're experiencing and that they can stop that. And for some people that might be a heart rate monitor if they need more of the gimmicks to help them feel that they're in more control of it. Or for others, it can just be, how do I feel? If I feel okay at, at this, then I can continue. If not, I stop when I don't feel right. And it's about listening to your body and taking it slowly and progressing it. And that can be either just using time or you can use heart rate if you wanted to, but it all depends upon the individual's preferences. But I think understanding that an increased heart rate and breathlessness from physical activity is a normal thing and delayed onset muscle soreness the next day is not a bleed. It's a normal um, reaction to doing more than you would normally have done is all part of the education process. So you mentioned it there, should everybody wear a Fitbit or an iWatch or what's the, the view on trackers and 
yeah. feedback I, mechanisms. I think it's an individual thing. I've got one. I like it. Some weeks I don't do as well as others. It helps me to monitor my progress and to acknowledge the weeks that are, haven't been so good. If people are able to do that with a diary or they internalize it in their head, it's what's right for in, individuals on how they choose to monitor their physical activity. I think habits are good. If you know that every day you go for a walk around the block and that's your baseline, then you, know, you don't need to know whether that's 4,000 or 5,000. You've got that as your baseline. And if you increase it and you go around one and a half times, that's increasing your physical activity. So it doesn't have to be step orientated. It can be time. It can be distance. It's your choice. You don't have to get het up in the nerdy side of things if you, do, if you don't want to. It's about having habits, keeping to it and making small progress and monitoring your physical activity so that if you have a bad week and you know that you're not as active, then you're aware of that so that maybe next week you might choose to adapt that or not, depending upon what's going on in your lifestyle. And also being aware of what makes you more active. Is it you prefer to do things on your own or do you prefer to, to be physically active with your peers or go for a walk with a friend? And Fitbits and all those sort of things can help with those sorts of things, but it's individual choice as to how you monitor your physical activity. That would be my um, viewpoint. Some of your research was around, is looks at tech though, Ruth, at least, doesn't it? Some of the stuff around monitoring of physical activity. Have you got any findings, anything you want to share? Is it good, bad, doesn't matter? It's just something shiny on your wrist that beeps every so often to tell you you're not moving. <laughs> Yeah, those devices are able to, to provide prompts, like you say, to, to get people to be more active. In my project, we're more like investigating habitual physical activities. So we've removed those kind of prompts, but we're using Fitbits to like objectively measure physical activity. And I think that we haven't got much results to share yet at this stage, but it does seem that our younger age group were investigating the habits of teenagers and young adults up to 30 years of age. And it does seem that they're almost as active as people without hemophilia, which is good. And the feedback from some of them has been that it's been really interesting to monitor their own physical activity. And I don't think they've been used to do that. And that they're now more aware of what they're, they're actually doing. And I think that for some, it can also be like a motivation that I want to do a bit more the next day or the next week, or that this is the time I spend walking to school. It now takes me a few minutes less. So that must mean that I'm, my fitness is increasing and that could be a motivation that went to this walk, this hike, and I, my steps were the highest it's ever been. So that was fun. So I think it could be good for a lot of people to use it as a motivation. I suppose they provide feedback, don't they? There's always something you can, a number, some people like a number, and there's a, an achievement of a numerical value or a distance value or a time value. And you can set yourself goals as well on them, and you get a sense of accomplishment. So whether you set it as... 1,000 steps a day or 6,000, you get a, a sense of achievement or accomplishment. Oh, I did that today. Okay, can I do it again tomorrow? And that helps when you get some sort of reward. 
back from what you do i think it motivates you like ruth lisa saying to want to do it again okay i did six thousand yesterday let's see if i can do six thousand tomorrow and that doesn't have to be steps that can be swimming in a swimming pool you know i swam for five five minutes on friday can i do it again on on monday so it's setting yourself realistic small goals that you can achieve and repeating them i think other sort of steps to success and it fits very nicely with that sort of earlier comment around behavior change because goals and rewards and planned sort of behavior and sort of goal setting is all part of the theoretical frameworks behind behavior change work the, the fact that these motivation is based upon not just oh i should get up and do it today there's a complex set of things happen before the decision to go swimming on a friday happens and for some as you said it's living near the swimming pool or being near the green area and for others it's they have the finances to pay for swimming so there's a socioeconomic issue too do you think that that broader sort of public health socioeconomic we have a responsibility in haemophilia care now that haemophilia treatment is so excellent for people who've got access to it that we've got people living longer they will live longer with their arthropathy those adults the children will hopefully live longer without arthropathy and minimal haemophilia effects and do we have a responsibility ethically as treaters to say we've got better hemostatic treatment now we try to motivate people to be physically well with their better hemostatic treatment i i I would say that's the whole public health health aspect and it will be allocation of funds from the department of health as to whether or not they see that as an importance to health well-being in the future in an ideal world i think it would be fantastic if we could have allocated funds for gyms or swimming pools for children or adults to promote physical activity in the real world with covid and and health cost cuts i'm not sure that will be perceived at the moment as financially viable and they're trying to do operations on it on a saturday i can't see that allocation of funds go to that but that's not to say that i don't think it would be a valuable use of funds i just think timing and money come into it barrier for yeah that's a yeah that's the barriers that are often there are some charities um that we have used so if we've had children in the past who we thought would benefit being a bit more physically active there's name goes out of my head now but a swimming challenge charity that would take children on a weekly basis for a set number of weeks free of charge so there are charities that are out there but with children becoming more equivalent to their peers like ruth elise said then it becomes harder to justify the allocation of a child with no functional limitations to a place on a charity as opposed to somebody who does. So it's a tricky one. Thinking about it, maybe not less of an idea, but more realistically, what should healthcare teams, haemophilia teams do to message sort of the messaging around physical activity? What would be an easily changeable or an easily implementable thing to, to practice? Thinking about the lifespan of haemophilia as well, where Perhaps the message for children with no joint disease is very different to the message for adults with arthropathy, or is it actually, maybe I'm assuming that there's a different message. What should key points for healthcare teams? I would say we need to look at the barriers to physical activity for individuals and maybe have a conversation about that. So whether or not that's obesity in a child that might be limiting them from being physically active, they don't want to participate because it's too hard. 
and looking at the barriers to being physically active. And I think that needs to start at, at a young age. I do wonder whether we should be looking, Ruth Elisa said they're comparable to their peers, but not all of them are. And if there are children within our centre that aren't, then I think maybe we have um, an obligation to look at the reasons why they're not and whether or not that's a joint score, whether or not that's obesity, whether or not that's exposure to physical activity. And then looking at ways or factors that we can change to help facilitate them being more physically active. Because as we've said before, an obese child is more likely to be an obese adult and an obese child is more likely to be less physically active, more likely be the same in adulthood. So we we have an obligation to try and help change that because we know that um, the long-term effect of those um, issues have significant effects as an adult. Some way of assessing more objectively physical activity in comparison to peers, I think, would be a way forward. And then having a conversation with parents. So I think it's about our assessments being maybe a little bit more meaningful to the families so that they've got some context in understanding how their child is in comparison to children that don't have haemophilia and how can they help maximise their child's ability um, so that they can perform the same as their peers would be a way that I think we should move forwards. And that's all goes back to education as well, as I said. And also we probably should be having this conversation with the families as well or with the adults as to what would you have found of benefit to make you more physically active when you were a child is there anything so it's engaging the parents of the children and the patients as to what they think apart from money to attend a gym or i don't know more education there may be caveats that or information that we haven't thought of that may be really relevant that might help us open the lock so that people can be more physically active. That does seem more different in adult practice, Ruth. I don't think it's very different for adults. I mean, you do need to ask people, what is it that you you want? What can we do to help you achieve that? What are the barriers? I think for people with haemophilia, a lot of the barriers to physical activity are the same as for anyone else. It could be lack of time and energy, which is typical for a lot of adults. And it could also be, of course, physical limitation, but it doesn't need to be that. It could be your environment that it's you don't feel, well, for some people, they don't feel safe going out after dark, or it could be that the neighborhood you live in, that the traffic is, is, is bad. And for children as well, of course, that you don't want to send your children out to play if it's not, if it's not safe. So if we can identify what the barriers are, we know if there are some of them we're able to do something about and the motivation of people, if there's something they really want to achieve there's usually a way to get there if we do it just step by step, help them identify, okay, if we need, if we work on this, you'll be able to get to the next step, then we can work on the next one and then get to where you want, whether that uh, really, if it's climbing Mount Everest, then for some, they'll be able to do that. But if it's just to get 
down to the floor to sit there and play with your kids and actually be able to get up again that's also an important goal for someone absolutely i think that's a really good point around the, the expansive expectation for some even within hemophilia we have exceptional humans who will be elite sports people but that is also in non-hemophilia as well that actually that's not unique to hemophilia per se but it's about as you say finding what is a meaningful activity to someone um, and lots of people don't like sport but actually they like gardening so it's having those conversations and I suppose maybe less health care focused and, and more self-care and, and how you are in your life rather than how you are in the hospital when you come to see us for clinic because actually it's a very different and I think up. that comparison to what goes on in the general population is the same teenagers become more sedentary in the general population they do with haemophilia so it's about trying to learn from what's available in the general population about how is it that or what is it or why do children become more sedentary as teenagers and what is it that we can do to try and help keep um, children active into adulthood and that, that's a challenge in the general population as we're, as we're fully aware of but it's an area that we also need to embrace and try and have with our families as well so that a, they're aware of it and maybe they can start from a younger age to try and educate um, people and their family on why they the child needs to be more active because hopefully with health promotion and education we might see a behavior um, change i don't know but it, it's the same as you said it's the same in general population but it's about maintaining physical activity from childhood to adulthood is where we think we need to work on i think that's a nice point to highlight and end on is the fact that it's easy to blame the haemophilia for the lack of activity whereas actually being less physically active is a social problem or it's a public health problem and that's actually you happen to be someone with haemophilia who also is not active and for some there is the side effects of haemophilia make it being active more difficult but yeah, having the time and the motivation and the energy and the free the equipment to do it is that's a common thread again across the general population Okay, so if we start to draw to a close, I want you to each think of one take-home message for anybody listening, whether they be somebody with haemophilia or healthcare clinicians or anybody. Physical activity and haemophilia, your sort of take-home note or thought for the day or research question or whatever. What would it be? I would say that physical activity is good for you and it's important to remember that some is better than none. You don't need to set two high goals whatever you do is better than nothing nice little mantra i also think physical activity is a lifelong journey and it changes but it's about adapting and making sure that you keep physically active so what i do at my age is not what i'm going to be doing when i'm age 80 and having real, realistic expectations. I'm not going to be doing hit classes when I'm 80, but I might be doing yoga. And knowing that's important, it's a journey. And Ruth Lee says, doing something is better than nothing, but that will change as age creeps up on us all. Lovely. Good thought for the day. We're all going to get the old <laughs> and stiff. I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to thank you both for taking part in this podcast it was super interesting i know we've all these things we've touched very 
generally on some quite large topics. But anybody listening, if you're interested in adding to the topic, feel free to contact myself or Luke or Ruth or Lisa or Mel. And we could easily have follow-ups to this and have conversations. This could go on because there's so many facets to this. Thank you to Ruth, Lisa and Mel for joining us in this episode. Thank you for listening. Um, to it. hope you enjoyed it and thank you to our sponsors as well that make the Hemecast episodes possible.